Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. Today's episode is brought to you by Lexum Press. Lexum Press seeks to produce works that will increase biblical literacy in conversation with the great tradition of Christian theological reflection. The Lived Theology series explores aspects of Christian doctrine through the eyes of men and women who practiced it. Volumes include Abraham Kuyper, John Chrysostom, Samuel Pierce, and forthcoming volumes on Jonathan Edwards, Irenaeus, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and many more. These books illuminate the vital contributions made by these figures throughout the history of the church. Learn more at lexumpress.com. All right, today's episode is the beginning of what will be uh, some recurring episodes with Madison Pierce. We talked today about hermeneutics, about biblical theology, about the relationship between systematic and biblical theology, talk about Star Wars and a bunch of other things. And this is something we plan on doing, hopefully monthly, if not at least every six weeks or so. People love having Madison on their earbuds, apparently, because every time she is on Church Grammar, I hear nothing but praise for her and how much people want her back on. So just giving the people what they want. So I hope you'll enjoy this conversation with Madison. We are brought to you by B&H Academic. Go to bhacademic.com to find out about their latest books and offerings. We're also brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. You can go to csbible.com to find out more about that English translation. And now, my conversation with Madison Pierce. But first, no big deal. And I already told you this, but it needs to be said publicly to embarrass you. Uh, I think people would rather you be the host of Church Grammar instead of me. Thank you. Uh, public, I accept. I will be the host of Church Grammar going forward. I'm sorry, Brandon, this isn't going to work out. <laughs> uh, I figured I'd just hand the reins over and go ahead and go home. So uh, yeah, it's every time that Madison Pierce is on this podcast, it is, I, I not kidding, my like emails and text messages and direct messages jump like tenfold of uh, I got, I sent you screenshots of them of people saying, well, Madison should be the co-host. Why is Madison not the co-host? <laughs> um, you need to have Madison on more. And I agree. I'm not saying that it's not true. You are the first time third guest, first time guest to be on for the third time. That's pretty special. So apparently last time we we just decided let's banter for an hour and see what happens with a, with a very <laughs> loose to zero outline. And uh, it was a lot of fun and I got a lot of ton of good feedback. So if you're the type that doesn't like the banter and just wants the uh, just deep nerdy theology interview stuff. This one's probably not for you, but uh, many other people enjoyed us talking about all kinds of random stuff. So uh, we're okay. going to do that uh, recurringly. Uh, we've 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 said once a month, but I don't know. The world is um, you know literally burning around us, so who knows uh, yeah. if we're able to pull that off? But um, we're going to try to do it at least somewhat close to that. So you may we may have Madison on ten to twelve times by the time the year is over. <laughs> uh, I just told her the key is we can't run out of things to talk about, so that's the that'll be the challenge. But Anyway, so what we're going to do today is, yeah, just talk through a loose outline of things, some personal, some theological, um, and just kind of see where the conversation goes. We have a few ideas. So um, first of all, I would like to take the opportunity as the one who has the microphone to um, have a little bit of a, a referendum on myself that happened from our last conversation, which was that uh, when you asked me favorite movies, <laughs> turns out that uh, Notebook and 300 were the two that... <laughs> came to mind. Um, 
and you know that, that's who that's that's the real me you know but i have a public image that i have to keep up and so i have to <laughs> i can't let people know the real me so i've got to repent and uh say something better so I'm not going to apologize for notebook and 300. It's, it's, it's just is what it is. You can't, you can't take it back. I can't take it. I definitely can't take <laughs> no. it back. It's uh, it's, it's on the internet forever. Um, but I would like to acknowledge that I do like other really good action films, like the Marvel films, obviously. Um, like uh, the, De I think I mentioned the departed, but departed uh, and some, some of those kind of, those kind of movies. I love those kind of movies. Um, not an action movie, but a quiet place. Have you seen that? Oh, yes. I saw A Quiet Place when I was just inordinately pregnant. Oh, wow. And yeah. So whenever she was giving birth, I was actually, I was just like weeping. <laughs> I was thinking, she's so, she's so hard and she's doing it all by herself. And and like, I mean, just, I was so pregnant. I don't even think I could like fit in the movie seat. <laughs> it was it was terrible <laughs> but and super traumatic. It's such a good movie. I watched it uh, actually on a flight back from Australia from one of my PhD trips. So I was on oh, a, pl awesome. a plane in the middle of the night watching it on a small screen. So I didn't get to probably fully appreciate it, but it was pitch black and it was just me in the screen. But that was probably my, my favorite movie I've watched in the last like two years. That's so uh, good. It was up there for sure. So those are redeemable, right? Those are those are um, better than 300 probably. I, yeah, I think so. I, I mean, I really love Scorsese. Um, when we went to Amsterdam, that was like my like celebrating. I finished my PhD trip with my family, and uh, Curtis, my husband, and I went to um, like a Scorsese exhibit oh, in Amsterdam, and it was yeah. amazing. It was like pictures and stuff from like Gangs of New York and The Departed, and all of these like yeah. just incredible films. It was so good because I mean, I, I love a lot of his work. Obviously, it's super dark and scary and whatever, yeah. but yeah. Well, my wife's not as big of a fan of those movies. So I, I, a lot of them I watch by myself. Um, she uh, She's a type of like, we only watch TV or movies at night after the kids are in bed. And she's like, I don't want to be stressed out at uh, oh, totally. 10 p.m. Uh, so sometimes I have to I have to find a way to watch those myself. But um, all right, so I wanted to just do that and get that out of the way. Okay. Um, I still Redeemed. don't have a, I still don't know that I have a better uh, answer to the romantic movies. I just don't watch a lot of them and notebooks just sticks with me. I don't know. I don't know what I'm supposed to, what I'm supposed to say. So um, I just wanted to go ahead and come clean on that. To clear that, that up. Um, I would also like to acknowledge from our last episode that I sent you the screenshot that you can now confirm that Michael Bird did call me doctor he when did. I defended my dissertation. Unless that was doctored. I, I mean, it, or edited in some way, we really can't confirm that that's the case. I, next time we'll have to bring Mike on and have him confirm himself. Yeah, the problem is that he would turn it into uh, a way worse burn than he's already given me publicly. So I'm just not going to yeah. put myself in that position. Um, okay, so let's uh, let's do. Um, I had one of the things I want to talk about a little bit, theologically speaking, so we don't lose our audience too quickly. We, we'll come back to some other stuff uh, later, but somebody probably wants to hear theology at some point. So uh, one of the things that you and I both interact with a lot that I think is really um, just an interesting conversation that's happening right now is a conversation about theological interpretation, biblical theology, historical critical method, patristic reception. Uh, there's all these kind of conversations both of us are doing in different ways, but very similar ways doing Trinitarian readings of scripture and, and theological readings. So um, talk a little bit about your kind of journey on that path, because I think probably for both of us, um, given our, our denominational and uh, institutional backgrounds, um, got a lot of the sort of basic historical, grammatical, historical, critical, here's kind of how to read scripture and what to do, uh, and came upon later, 
some of the appreciations for theological readings and stuff like that. So talk through a little bit. Uh, you can tell your story if you want to, or even if you just want to talk through how, when you go to the, open the book of Hebrews, for example, what are the theological principles, hermeneutics, the, the things that you're thinking about when it comes to how you're actually reading the New Testament in relationship to theology, biblical theology, exegesis. So that's, that's 40 questions in one. Yeah. But how do you, uh, Dr. Madison Pierce, the younger, how do you talk through these things? Uh, well, uh, my elder, uh, Mr. Smith, or are we saying doctor now? <laughs> I'm just going to let it go. Um, let it go. <laughs> I, yeah, that is a lot of questions. Um, I'll, I can start with the more methodological thing, which is to say that um, when I was coming up, so, you know, when I did my undergrad at Washtenaw, and then even when I came to TEDS, um, I, just with the classes that I picked, and I don't think I did this intentionally, but I ended up taking a lot of courses that were systematically oriented or even were labeled as systematic theology, but really were more like biblical theology. Um, you know, tracing a theme through um, the biblical witness, um, synthesizing to a degree, kind of figuring out how, like, how we map those categories onto the modern world. And um, I really had to, I don't know, almost repent of that when I, when I went to Durham and then even subsequently as I've been um, really coming to terms with uh, systematic theology proper and appreciating what my brothers and sisters in that discipline are doing when they're working from in a different direction. And so, um, I mean, this is a little reductionistic, but I would think that when, when I'm approaching the text, um, you know, I'm saying, what does a plain reading suggest? Um, how are we informed by, you know, the rest of the biblical witness? And then are there theological categories that this contributes to? So atonement, for example, um, and that's, of course, a big one for Hebrews. But, you know, I see my brothers and sisters in systematic theology that are saying, okay, what is atonement? How does that work? What are the different, you know, things that we can say about that? And then, you know, from and this obviously happens in a lot of different directions of its analytic theology or whatever. Um, but, you know, that's in conversation with the biblical witness, but the com the questions come about in a different way. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll stop for a second and, and like, and just let you kind of jump back in or whatever. But then looking at um, early Christian literature and how that informed, I mean, that was just part of that, like tracing that trajectory and saying, okay, if these are potentially the theological categories that Hebrews is speaking to, for example, then where do we see that reflected in the texts that come just after Hebrews? Is there some kind of trajectory that we can map this onto, I guess? I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, um, I don't know if you've read this article or not, I'm put, totally putting you on the spot here, but uh, Dan Trier wrote an article several years ago and it was, you know, it was called TIS and or biblical theology. Have you seen that? Yeah. 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 That was a really influential article for me. How do you talk through the difference between a theological interpretation type approach that has a little more systematic to it and biblical theology proper is, are they, cause you kind of mentioned that, are they as distinct as we want them to be, or do you think they need to be distinguished or how do you think through some of that? Yeah, I think they should. Um, and it's been a minute since I've read Dan's stuff. And so it's undoubtedly the case that what's about to come out of my mouth is incredibly influenced by Francis um, or Francis Watson, my, my supervisor, um, because I can hear him in the back of my head 
um, reminding me of the distinctive testimony of each of our, our biblical authors. And I, I think that that's the difference. The focus in biblical theology is harmonizing and creating something that has more of a synthesis to it. Um, whereas what I would think of what I'm doing when I'm looking at theological interpretation is ensuring that the text that I'm working with is able to contribute to theology in its distinctive way. I'm always asking the question, you know, if this text weren't present, is there something that we'd miss? Um, and that doesn't mean that it allows um, texts of scripture to be contradictory um, or to, you know, create too much tension. But I do want to uh, not to harmonize quite as quickly as, as some that work in biblical theology tend to do, I guess. Does that make yes. sense? Yeah, so basically you're just a modernist who just likes to spin everything up. <laughs> no, <laughs> maybe. No, no, no. Yeah, no, eh, yeah, no. Maybe, uh. <laughs> yeah, no, it's an interesting question because it's something that, you know, when I read that article, I remember going through the same kind of thing of like, oh, is there a difference between these two things? Because a lot of times I'd see a quote unquote theological reading and it really was just, let's trace temple throughout the whole Bible. Okay. It's like, that is a type of theology. But then when I'm reading, you know, uh, say a patristic author like an Athanasius going through what does it mean to say that Jesus is God's son or what does it mean to say that he is equal with the father well that's a different type of tracing theology right I mean there, there's there's a sense in which you're connecting texts and ideas but it just felt different and I was like I gotta figure out what the difference is because these, these can't be the same and so I think Dan mm -hmm. was one who did a good job of that and I think you're obviously doing that a lot too so yeah, and to, I mean, we didn't talk about historical critical method, or I didn't bring that into the story, but I mean, one of the things, when I was at Durham, I took a seminar with uh, Walter Moberly on theological interpretation of scripture, and uh, the first half of the class is theoretical, and, you know, I, I've talked about this before uh, um, in different venues, but I mean, we talked about, you know, how does faith contribute to scholarship, or how does it hinder scholarship? I mean, that's obviously the perspective of some. Um, and then, you know, what does theological interpretation look like? And then the second half of the class was interpreting Genesis 22. But um, in that first kind of theoretical part, I mean, one of the other things was, you know, how does historical critical work contribute? And I think that Walter, and this is certainly the case of Francis as well, that they are doing uh, what we would call traditional historical critical work. Uh, I mean, Walter is even doing some documentary hypothesis stuff, or at least like source critical and everything. Um, but I mean, it always ends up in a theological place. And so it's not, I, I think what we forget is that while theological interpretation is maybe an end or a goal, I'm not sure that it can be characterized quite so strongly as, a, as some kind of means or method. The other things that we're doing, the tools that we bring to the text are the things that serve our theological interpretation, I, I think. I don't know. Yeah, so you would see historical critical type stuff, which would be historical backgrounds, linguistic study, I mean, all kinds of things that go into that. You would see that as not a method itself, but tools toward the end of the method that you're actually doing. So yeah, what would you I mean, call your some... method versus tools? Like, what would, how would you define Dr. Madison N. Pierce's method versus the tools that she's using to uh, inform that method? Yeah, I don't know that I have that um, super worked out. I mean, I would probably talk more about like the the dominant threads in my scholarship. So, um, you know, I'll talk. I definitely use historical critical or historical grammatical means of examining the text. You know, looking at the, what is going on from a historical perspective. But then, you know, I also would say that like a literary or narrative critical uh, method or perspective is is a big approach for me um, because I'm looking at you know and and 
you can call it that. You can also call it biblical theology or whatever, but, you know, looking at like, how is the author using this language? How does that map onto uh, trends that we see in the text that he's using and things like that? Um, so I, I would call that narrative or literary critical because I, I'm working from texts, um, you know, primarily and, uh, and doing that as a reader. But um, yeah, so the, those are the big threads. And then, but again, like the theological part is secondary um, or I don't know, I, it can't be separated out so, so neatly, I guess. What, what about you? No, that's helpful. Yeah. I mean, my, uh, my journey was, um, I talked about this just briefly on a previous episode when I talked through my in defense of pre-modern exegesis little thing. I was, you know, in my undergrad, I was basically told the church fathers were wrong. Don't emulate them. You know, you have Irenaeus saying, I'm just doing what the apostles are doing, you know, and they would say, well, Irenaeus is wrong. He's not inspired. So he can't do what they're mm -hmm. doing. So you can only do what they, what they literally have laid down for you. And there were parts of it. It wasn't, they didn't mean to do this. I don't think. And, and uh, I'm pretty sure one of my former professors listens to the podcast. So I don't want to insult him in any meaningful way. Cause I, I don't mean to, uh, it wasn't him, but in some classes I got a very clear, very hard nosed historical critical that was almost canonic. I mean, it was just almost like this, that what did the human author mean? What is the historical mm -hmm. background? What is the second temple stuff they were probably reading? Let's psychoanalyze the human author. If he didn't mean it and the first century audience didn't understand it, then it, it's not a meaningful interpretation. It wasn't until I started reading the fathers in my beginning of my grad work that I said, oh, this is like a Christian reading. <laughs> you know, I don't mean to bifurcate in the sense that these people weren't Christians. But to me, when I said, what's a Christian reading, that there's an ontology to the text itself and then the unity of that text, right? So when I see Irenaeus say, well, the reason why scripture is a unified story that you can't break up is because we have a try we have a god who is who is united and who is authoritative and who has inspired it so if something is confusing it's not his fault it's your fault right use the use the more clear passages and when i started reading that i was like no this is what i want to do like this is how i read scripture and i'm being told to read it differently and that was kind of the first step for me to go okay there's there's something more going on here now of course I'm going to read origin and see all kinds of random things in origin. That I'm like, ah, that's not me, you know, but, but what origin has in common with Irenaeus, with Martin Luther, with John Calvin and with Brevard Childs and with Karl Barth and with you and me is he cares about the text of scripture and how the text is testifying to the God who inspired it. Right. So that sort of thread is something that when I came across that, I was like, okay, this is how I want to read scripture. So I come to scripture with, with much more of a, um, sort of rule of faith, ontological presupposition that this is God's word. This is all about him and pointing to him. So in what ways is this text showing me the triune God who, who is revealing himself to me in this text? And so I'm coming at it with without apology at this point in my life. I used to apologize for it. Now I'm coming unapologetically to say, I affirm, I think scripture teaches that God is triune. Therefore, when I read scripture, I expect to see the triune God in scripture. And so this is why I've you know devoted a lot of my work to Trinitarian readings is because I, I think there's a little bit of a dearth there uh, between, you know, not all historical critical does this, but that real hard nosed kind of let's take all the divine stuff out of it. Let's take the unity stuff out of it and just figure out yeah. what this author's doing. And if he didn't mean it, then it's not what it means. That, and then the flip side, the hardcore flip side, when I was taught to preach, which was everything is moralistic and principalized. And there's these oh, two yeah. extremes where it's like uh, all tropology or all literal sense. And then there's nothing else. This does, It's not tied together. And so when I go to the text, I unapologetically go as a confessing triune 
Christian, trying Christian, that's probably wrong. It's probably calling me God somehow, but you know what I mean? Uh, a Christian who confirms confessionally that God is trying. My interpretation is at some level, whether I, whatever tools I'm using to get there, at some level, I'm going to be learning something about the person and work of God. Oh, totally. I think what I hear you saying is that you're kind of starting with categories and then like looking at where you can find those. And I think that's totally reasonable. I mean, I, I characterize myself as kind of starting with the text and, and that's really what now I've been just doing made, lately. By the way, you just made me not, you just made me the guy who doesn't start with the text and that's not, that's not who well, I you am. You made me the one that doesn't look for God in, this, well, <laughs> in the Bible. Well, what I do is look for God in scripture. See, I, I didn't point you out. You do. I didn't point you out. You said, whereas you, okay, anyway. I, I was about to say though, so right now I'm, I'm like working on a commentary. So that obviously is like verse by verse, starting with the text and then kind of branching out, but you know, in various things that I've written, I mean, you know, we talked about my ETS paper on the last episode. Um, it has been starting with a topic and some kind of idea and then seeing, okay, are there places that we see that reflected in the biblical text? And so all that to say, like, yeah, I, t I think that methodologically we're doing something similar um, on, on a given day. I mean, but I kind of work in both directions, I guess. Yeah. And probably uh, some of it is discipline specific. Like I, I'm coming from a little bit more of a systematic retrieval perspective and just my work you're coming from a little bit more of a New Testament perspective, but we're kind of coming to the same point in the middle. Um, yeah. yeah. So I care about the text. I just want people to know that, but um, <laughs> I mean, but it, it, it does depend, you know, I think it does depend on uh, you know, I talked to Darian Lockett, I think it was like the fifth episode of this, of this podcast or something. So it's a year or so old now. Uh, I talked to him about his biblical theology book and how he's got the five different taxonomies, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And I said, you know, sometimes it depends on what, who my audience is and what I'm doing, uh, uh, which category I fall into. Uh, you know, if I'm assigned to preach a text at a church or at my church, uh, I'm going to be very textual. I, I always want to go the way the words go. I'm never not doing that. Um, and I'm probably going to be careful to what extent am I drawing systematic categories unless they're helpful, right. For the, for the audience. Um, you know, that's a little bit different than if I'm writing a scholarly paper trying to, to defend the fact that the Trinity is biblical, you know, so uh, some of it does depend on, you know, where you're coming from. But I do think my default is to start with the tech, I, I affirm presuppositionally and confessionally that the text is doing this. And so I expect it to happen. Uh, yeah. And I used to apologize for that. And I'm just uh, not apologizing for that anymore, because I'm a Christian. So <laughs> I think that's fine. I mean, I think um, right. hopefully that, you know, we're doing work that helps us to be able to back that up. I mean, it'd yeah. be one thing if you just like, you know, said the Bible is Trinitarian and then stuck your fingers in your ears and like yeah. didn't listen to anybody. Yeah. But, you know, doing the investigative work and and digging into um, not only early Christian literature, but even modern uh, biblical scholars. I mean, yeah. that's you can back it up. So. Yeah. I think that the thing I'm wrestling through right now um, is, you know, all the categories of census plenior and Christotelic readings and Trinitarian readings. I'm still working through a little bit. You know, I just read Don Collette's um, book. Have you read it? Um, no, I haven't. It's definitely at the top of my list. The figural reading. Yeah. Figural reading in the old Testament. Nobody's looking yeah. at this, but you, but um, you know, he, uh, he, it's one of those things where like you read a book and you're like, that's what I've been trying to say for like two years. And, and I could never figure out how to do it. And he just did it better. But one of the things that he does a really good job of is he says, and I think he's right about this. I'm still wrestling a little bit. And I'd be really curious to hear your thoughts on it. He says, you know, the whole idea of human authorship and divine authorship, this kind of two author thing 
is really a, a, a problematic modern assumption because what you end up doing is at times you can pit them against each other. And what he says is, you know, it's better to do something like talk about providence and the fact that scripture is already ordered in such a way that it confesses God this way. So he says, when you're reading the Old Testament, it's not that the Old Testament wasn't Christian until the until you know Paul came along. It's that God has already providentially ordered creation and even his scripture in such a way that this is what it this is the only way to read it. This is how you read uh, like Jesus is this person because he always has been because God has always been triune and this has always been anticipating his his arrival. So I, I've I've started to like that idea of going, let's maybe step away from some of the psychoanalyzing the authors step away a little bit even from the two author perspective and say, yes, there's obviously a human author element. Yes, there's a divine author element, but they're more closely aligned than I think we often get credit for. So I don't know, that that's that's a, a very unorganized thought uh, as I've been reading it. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Oh, goodness. I have a lot of things I'd like to say. I think I want to start with saying that my only concern with, with statements like that is I do, uh, I'm I'm reticent to um, to reduce readings of um, the Old Testament to purely Christian readings in the sense that we diminish, yeah, the significance for the original audience and all of that. And he doesn't but do that, the, by the way. Oh yeah, no, I don't expect that. Um, but that's the the point of clarity that I that I want to offer is to say that um, what you're saying, and I think what you're saying, he's saying. <laughs> please correct me if I'm totally wrong. Is that? Um, that God has been consistent. I mean, you know, Hebrews says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I think that is true of, you know, Adonai and like as a whole. And so, um, yeah, if we're seeing God acting in this or that way and assume that um, the spirit and son are present in some way, um, then that's con there's consistency there. And we see that revelation of who God is. So you can't bifurcate him and or his divine attributes or anything like that, of course. Um, and so what we see in the New Testament as the authors are reading is um, they're picking up on, I mean, I'm, I'm drawing here, um, even like on, on some of my work with Presbological Jesus and stuff, like they're seeing glimpses or hearing voices from the other persons. And, and they're doing it by picking up on like what we would call historical critical or historical grammatical tools. Like here's a shift in person, here's a, you know, two person or two Lords speaking to each other or whatever. I mean, that's clearly observable in the biblical text. Um, and so they're, they're seeing something that was placed there um, either yeah, providentially or by a later interpreter, you know, when we have Septuagint differences or whatever. And so it's just, I don't know, super interesting. It was a little rambly, but that's where I'm at. Oh, the divine, the author's question. Yeah. I mean, I think that's super difficult. I mean, for a long time, we've been recognizing the limitations of um, various approaches to hermeneutics that uh, strictly, you know, separate the, the reader, the author, the text, the divine author, et cetera. And um, I, I think um, the further like limit or sorry, like difference between the human and divine author is, I mean, that's just as it's more difficult than deciding what the human author intended, because really what you end up doing is saying that God thinks what I think. Um, or God intended what I intend. And I, <laughs> I'm just super, I'm not comfortable with that. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to read. I've got three quotes here from the book I'll read that might be helpful. Uh, oh, good. 
So yeah, I mean, one of the things that he wants to do is is talk about how there's a, a bit of a continuity among pre-modern readers and how, you know, Luther didn't just abandon allegory. He just expanded the literal sense. And there's all that kind of stuff, right? So there's a couple of quotes that, that I thought were helpful. And what I do, you can see this, but people can't. I put exclamation points sometimes next to like either one that that's like too. a, either if it's like a big burn of somebody, I'm like, dang, or it's like, wow, that was really helpful. And then I star things that are like crucial to the argument, but maybe didn't blow my mind. So um, wow. This is one that I put on, uh, I put under the, the uh, exclamation point. Uh, reading scripture as though it were merely a historical exercise not only fails to do justice to its theological res and subject matter, but also ignores the purpose for which scripture was given, namely to serve as the inspired instrument of the triune God's self-disclosure in Christ by the Spirit. I'm like, come on, who, who's going to say that better? Um, this, is, <laughs> this is while he's, and then a little bit later, he says, the Bible not only speaks figuratively through its literal sense, but it also must speak figuratively, not simply because Christians wish it to be so, but because its subject matter is theological. Stated more plainly, the Bible must speak figuratively because it is a book about God. So the vertical link linkage between scripture and the triune Lord of history manifests itself in the figural sense, bearing witness to the Bible's ability to unify disparate historical contexts and speak in and through time. What is your response to those uh, quotes I just threw at you? Well, since they're completely removed, yeah, it's a little bit tough, but um, I don't, the, the language of speaking figurally is something that I'll have to think through because um, I would think of, of us as doing figural reading rather than the text communicating in a figural way. So I would say that we, that the text opens the door for figural, for figural readings and that that was ordained by the Lord for sure. Does that make sense? That like, distinction there i don't know yeah so i'm just gonna throw more quotes at you this is really fun this is, this is, <laughs> this is so unfair this is fun <laughs> uh so yeah all caveats all caveats to uh dr colette who i again this is my favorite book i read last year where's and, my where's my caveats <laughs> uh, well your caveat is that uh i'm just throwing quotes at you um so when he argue he he says on this model of the human and divine authorship on this model for understanding authorial sense the real author is the thinking thing or human consciousness behind the literal sense. Biblical meaning is now a function of what its inspired authors were aware of when they pinned the words of scripture rather than the inspired words of the biblical text per se. This contrasts with earlier accounts of authorial sense and biblical interpretation. These accounts did not make a sharp distinction between authorial intention and inspired words of scripture, but regarded them as integrated realities. Thoughts? <laughs> I love your, watching your face contort as I read this to you. Yes, don't you wish that everyone could enjoy that at home? Don't you wish um, that you had context for the things I'm saying? <laughs> uh, Basically, to... what he's saying is that you're focusing more on the, the the author's mind than you are the biblical text itself. And when you focus too much on the author's mind, you're removing the providential inspiration and the bigger unified picture that's being told. I'm not doing that. No, you're not. The one who is doing that is doing that. Of course, okay. you wouldn't be doing that. Um, no. Although I think you probably are, but... Um, no, I'm not. I'm not doing that. Okay, you're un you're really uncomfortable. So I'm gonna. I'm gonna, that was a really fun <laughs> exercise. That's a new exercise we're gonna do. I'm gonna read you random quotes. Okay, but books. I get to bring a book next time. Okay, that's fine. As long as I've right. read it and know all the context. No, 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 no. I'm gonna come up with the weirdest book I can. I actually read this article today that um that was super weird, and maybe that will make an appearance. Okay. Well, I'm glad that I'm glad that you agree with uh, Colette because you should. So. <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't allow you to, to disagree with him. So I right, go ahead. Your right. turn. Softball is thrown your way. Oh my goodness. Um, let's see the softball to me. 
Um, so yeah, we've been talking about early Christian literature. I guess you've kind of said that you, was it in your graduate program that you got into reading patristics and stuff? Yeah. And mm-hmm. okay. The other thing is, so I think on the last episode, you told me that you started wanting to do kind of what Wes was doing. So Paul and the Trinity and wanted to find a Trinitarian reading. And it was uh, Mike, mm-hmm. third man, who um, said, go for Revelation, which I think is a wise move on his part. If you weren't working on Revelation, if you're picking another biblical text, like, is there a text in the New Testament or in scripture that really resonates with you or a place where you like really feel at home? Yeah. Um, Revelation's still not it. So <laughs> Revelation's not the answer to that question. Uh, I would, yeah, if I were to pick another corpora, it would, it would be the gospels. Even when I'm doing my work on Revelation, you know, one of the things that, that's in the back of my mind is, uh, you know, to what extent does the witness of the gospels inform the way that John and Paul are doing what they're doing, whether it's oral tradition or written or whatever, the fact that Jesus is there, and that he's doing these things and that these are interpretations and stories of what he has done. Me as a Trinity guy and as a sort of theological reading guy, I just am fascinated with, um, you know, without getting too much into the thinking thing, consciousness, uh, authorial intent thing, like what is the author trying to convey about who Jesus is? John talks about being selective. Luke talks about being selective. Um, when Jesus says, uh, you know, I'm the manna from heaven. That's one that's been stuck on. I've been really stuck on lately. That is a, that there's so much there, right? There is, he is the gift from heaven. Um, there's this, uh, you know, he, he's right on that with eat my body and drink my blood, which is a whole other thing. Um, somehow providentially John six, six, six is when all the disciples walk away I know. whenever he says that. Yeah. When I, so when I was a kid or, I mean, I was a teenager or whatever, and it was super into like numerology. I looked at all the verses in scripture that were like six, six, six. I, I, I'm so embarrassed by this, but I found that when I was like, oh Ooh. well, uh, when I was a teenager, I was obsessed with numerology, which was memorizing sports stats. I had no interest in Bible <laughs> stuff. So there's a window into our two lives. Um, but anyway, I've, I've been really fascinated by that because then, and then there's the whole question of, uh, you know, typology and, and, when Jesus says this, is he telling us to do the same thing, right? And the, that whole conversation we just talked about. So I'm always, I'm really fascinated by the gospels and the way, and I just read, um, it didn't make my top five list on my blog because I didn't finish it, but Jesus Becoming Jesus by Thomas Winandy is a theological interpretation of the synoptics. And it is like, it, I, I've had to like, I've had to put it down so that I could actually get work done. It's like one of those just beautifully written, like unbelievable wow. uh, books. And so that's got me thinking even more. So um yeah, so if I could do something else, it would probably be something in the Gospels. But um, I, I also, <laughs> uh, part of my New Testament scholarship is really that New Testament is a vehicle through which I am doing systematic theology, not that I want to do more uh, necessarily, quote unquote, New Testament studies. I just want to stay away from the text and just <laughs> impose categories into it as much as possible. So that troll was, I set that troll up. It was, it was, oh man, okay. that, was good. that was good. All right. Yeah. So um, something I want to come back to and what you said, you were talking about the passage in John 6, the eat my flesh, drink my blood. And then you talked about typology and to what extent we should model that. Um, I want to be really clear to you and to your, to your listeners, Brandon, that Jesus is not telling us to be cannibals. Oh, fair. And yeah. he's not telling us to like that. He's not saying that we should actually be feasted upon. Yeah. I feel so. like that's a, um, I feel like everybody assumes that that's just uh, literally true. So, yeah. 
Um, yeah, I actually, use, I, use, I use that as an example every time when I tell people, uh, when I'm doing hermeneutics with students, I always uh, throw that one out there. Like, when you say you take the Bible literally, what do you mean? Because what does that mean? If literal means what you say it means, what does Jesus mean when he says that? And they're always like, oh, yeah, I guess I do assume that <laughs> not, he doesn't actually mean that. So anyway, yeah, it's for real. some, you know, uh, some like in the Orthodox tradition would say no, or even definitely the Catholic they kind of go that way. They're like, well, transubstantiation is what he means. You're literally eating it. So maybe there yeah, is cannibalism. Like, Catholics are cannibals. I never knew that. Wow. We just learned something new today. I did not learn that today. The, you are, this you evolved are, really you quickly. Back, <laughs> backpedaling from that so fast. Uh, all right. Okay. What, uh, what else you got? What other ideas do you have to talk about today? You, you um, have a whole list. I don't. Oh, I don't and, want to. And yeah. they're 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 not even remotely connected. That's why we'll do the slow round where they're not connected, and we just say random and we just talk about random stuff. Okay. So we're enacting right. now the slow round, so there's slow no round. there's no organization to anything. Okay, I'm gonna go out of order too, so I'm gonna trip you up. Okay. okay. What's the weirdest thing that's ever happened in your classroom while you're teaching? Oh, um, there's so many options for this because like I could embarrass a student with the wrong uh, story. Okay, um, don't do that. No, I mean, I've had, I definitely have had uh, more than one Zoom issue in which uh, there has been um, uh, students who are in the background behind the student in my class, um, not doing anything inappropriate to get them, you know, uh, expelled from school, but certainly not, uh, certainly very distracting, we'll say, to the students who are in the class. There was also the time where uh, two people who were dating in my class had switched uh, computers because they thought it would be funny. Uh, to have their names on there differently. Um, and so I made them feel weird by just calling it out to the whole class. And that was a lot of fun watching them squirm. Um, uh, but maybe the weirdest thing that has happened so far is um, having, I mean, this is not that weird. I've only been teaching for basically three semesters. Your dog is, uh, I see your dog back there hanging out again. What's her name? Izzy. Huh? Izzy. That's right. Yeah. Izzy. Izzy. These are headphones, Brandon. You oh, can't, she can't, can't hear, hear you. Okay. Well, that was that was going to be a lot more fun than it turned out to be. Um, the weirdest thing that's happened so far is I had a student in my class who was a freshman who I thought was a visiting uh, father uh, no. of my students. Uh, and so I um, I uh, did the thing that you never do, which is I asked a student if they would like to introduce their guest. And that guest happened to be like a 60-year-old freshman in my class. And um <laughs> I had to apologize to him after he was really cool about it. Uh, he did drop out for the semester was over. So I don't know if that was directly related, but he was really cool about it. So uh, that's about the weirdest thing, but um, I'm sure I'll have better stories later. What about you? Yeah, that's pretty generous. I mean, I've had uh, situations where there was some kind of like um, meteorological phenomenon. I didn't even pronounce that word correctly. Um, going on where I had to like pretend like it wasn't to distract mm. students, like like big storms or something like that. That's not that interesting, but yeah. it's kind of like play it cool or yeah. like somebody <laughs> in the hallway doing something like incredibly weird and yeah. only I can see them and the rest of the students can't. See, They're I'm the type to call that out. I'm like, everybody turn around and look. I'm, I'm, the, worst. <laughs> I'm the opposite. So. It's, it's often stuff that's not that interesting, but it's, yeah. Distracting. Um, 
Yeah. And I've had like medical emergencies. I've actually had a oh, lot I've of medical that. emergencies while I was teaching, um, like students having either panic attacks or like other issues, like while I was teaching. Is it because and... you were just blowing their minds theologically and they just like, just freaked them out or you think it was, it was unrelated? Um, I'd like to think that it was because, you know, their adrenaline had come down and they were in a safe space that yeah, right. like they were not panicked about what I was saying, but they were like, this is so good. And then yeah. their body was like, boom. So yeah. it's like they're, yeah, I don't know though. Um, maybe they were, they were freaked out. Maybe yeah. they were charismatic. Maybe they were having an, uh, a moment like they were just, and you thought it was a medical emergency, but it wasn't, you know, like, and like in Acts five, if Ananias and Sapphira had just dropped dead. And we were sitting there, we'd probably been like, oh, he had a heart attack. That's sad. And then, no, no, no. <laughs> spiritual experience. You think so? Uh, well, in that, in that sense, divine judgment, but nonetheless. And I've, I've had some pesky comments, but I'm not sure if, I'm gonna, if I want to tell them. Like That's I fine. had, a, okay, I'll tell one. Okay. I had a student while I was teaching, raise his hand and tell me that it was good I'd been saved through childbearing. <laughs> Well, he, he, he was reading first Timothy. Make yeah. Better? Yeah. So he was working from the text, which yeah. is good. Unlike some people. Um. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, I, uh, my not caring about the text would lead me to never say that. So does that make you feel better? <laughs> so. so you good. avoid problems too. You know, it goes both ways. Yeah. I'm glad you're, and he was serious. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Well, hopefully he's yeah. listening. Hopefully he's out there somewhere. Uh, he's probably going around telling people that you're his favorite professor and now he listens to this podcast and I think there is no chance that that happens. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, okay. Uh, let's see. We're on the slow round right now. Um, what is, uh, the most, uh, the most biblical womanhood thing you have done during the pandemic? I know at least one of them, but you tell me what you think is the most biblical womanhood that you've been in this pandemic. Um, let's see. It probably is baking a lot of cookies. Um, I, I mean, it's also the case that I have a two-year-old and, uh, <laughs> and I'm, I mean, especially right now, we, um, it's just my husband and I with her right now, but like we are, we usually split childcare, but aren't doing that right now. Yeah. And so, I mean, I'm with a toddler half my work week right now. And it's, I mean, it's wonderful. Like I, I really love it. Um, but definitely, uh, doing a lot of, uh, medical checkups on stuffed animals mm -hmm. and, uh, all of that. And so well, that's, that's not really womanhood. I mean, that's no, parenting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I've been baking a lot of cookies and, uh, I feel like there's something strange I did. You did tell me that you were like living out first Peter three, uh, during the pandemic. Yeah. Oh, in the sense that I am not outwardly adorning myself at all. Um, Y'all can't see right now, but I, you know, I got my hair like up in a towel and uh, not just true. really slimming it today. So <laughs> that is not true. That I would, that we would have a, we'd re-record if you showed up in it and you'll see your head in a towel. I'm like, okay, we can't, this is not serious. I can't take this seriously. I'm going to have to do that. Next time. <laughs> we'll see if you'll really back out. <laughs> yeah, no, I would. Don't, don't tempt me. Um, you'll, you'll lose your ability to be on this extremely popular podcast in which you are going to sell. Wait, 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 wait. So are you saying, Brandon, that if I, as a woman am not beautiful, that I do not have anything meaningful to say on your podcast? Uh, that's not what I said. That hmm. is not uh, at all what I said, but it, um, it appears that we're going to change the subject. So, um, <laughs> uh, your turn for the slow round. <laughs> 
You're terrible. Okay. Uh, what is your favorite Star Wars episode? Oh, of the movies? Favorite movie. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you what's not my favorite is one and two. And I have, it's just anathema to me that anybody who thinks that they're going to like do a zigzag and be like, no, no, no. One and two were really good. No, they were not good. They were fine for storytelling. They were not, they were not the best. Um, I would probably put, I, this is actually going to get me in trouble with Star Wars people. Uh, I mean, Return of the Jedi is probably my favorite. Um, really? Well, it doesn't get a lot. Of, most people acknowledge it's really good. Uh, yeah. Probably my and top Jedi three. was my favorite. Yeah, yeah, probably well, still is. Top three though, like The Last Jedi is in my top three, which is anathema it, to many. It is. Yes. See, you you just almost uh, passed like out when I said that. I, yeah, I'm I'm astounded. Okay. Well, well but here's wait, why. So does the New Hope get bumped out? Is that what you're? Uh, I like New Hope fine, but to me, New Hope is a vehicle to the better movies. So it's good. I mean, it, it, look, when we're talking about this, somebody made this point on Twitter. I can't remember who it was or I'd give them credit. Somebody made this point on Twitter recently. They're all Star Wars. So they're all good. So we're just talking about gradations of goodness. Uh, even one and two, as terrible as they are, they're still Star Wars. So they're still just, well, it's really hard to say that one is good, but I'm going to grant it that it is. But yeah, I mean, New Hope is great. Um, it's hard, you know, there's nine of them and two of them are obviously eight and nine on my list. And then there's a, there's a big mix up in the middle. But um, I think the, the, the problem with people who don't like The Last Jedi is also people who don't like the Bible because they don't appreciate typology and figural readings and, um, you know, repeated categories and ideas, which is what The Last Jedi does so well. Uh, the problem is not that Last Jedi is not a good movie. The problem is, is that Disney did a poor job of having a consistent story. And so The Last Jedi doesn't match up with Seven the way everybody wants it to. And that's why they don't like it. But that's not The Last Jedi's fault. That doesn't match up with Seven. If they had done all of them, Seven, Eight, Nine, in the mode of The Last Jedi, Last Jedi, would it wouldn't be a question. So. So what you're saying is even though Last Jedi was written and filmed and released after episode seven, it right. was in no, by no means required to follow the prior story. <laughs> well, it was, what you're <laughs> it was, I'm just saying it's Disney's fault. The Last Jedi oh. on its own is a, I think a much better, I think it does uh, a much more, I'm getting screamed at right now by so many people uh, who are listening <laughs> to this. But The Last Jedi is a better representation of four, five, six, and what should come after than seven and nine are. But so The Last Jedi gets killed for not being the natural successor to seven, even though it's a better successor to four, five, six. That's my argument. Okay. Come at me at Brandon underscore D underscore Smith on Twitter. Come at me. I mean, yeah, please, y'all just handle that because I'm not <laughs> sure. I don't, I don't even know how to respond to that. Because think, it's, so, it's illogical or because you're just so offended? Or both? Both? Yeah. I'm just... No. I mean, I think the... the I, what, what really is tripping me up is you exonerating Last Jedi. Because I think it was the... It's not Disney's fault that that's inconsistent. It's the people involved in the production of that particular movie. They, like, the it's not like they can go back and redo episode seven. So they have to finish the arc that they were given. Even and if it wasn't good, they could have redeemed it. If there's, you know. I just, I just think that, um, you know, at some point the, the onus is on the person making the movie, movie to do the right thing. 
And so in that sense, I just think that um, The Last Jedi does the right thing. And you find the right thing in terms of its service to the original trilogy. Yes. Yes. So J.J. Abrams tried to do some weirdo lost thing where he just wants to confuse everybody with a story that doesn't make sense. And Ryan Johnson said, no, I'm going to come and I'm going to fix this thing and make it the way it's supposed to be. What elements in particular are you talking about? Well, so there's all the people give them all kinds of grief for the way that Ben Solo acts and how he's whiny and needy and how Ray is all of a sudden, you know, this nobody from an unknown planet. Um, and I think what Ryan Johnson did well was say, this is, uh, we don't have to do everything. This is a big, big problem for the Star Wars people, I understand. But not everything has to be about the Skywalkers. And I think he did a good job of saying this is a natural progression in typology and recapitulation of that story without having to so he did all the fan service without all of the laziness that comes with uh, seven which is great it's fine i like typology seven's got some good typology they like to reenact like every scene and you know whenever ben kills solo it's just like luke and and i I appreciate all that i'm just saying last jedi did a better job of actually thinking through it instead of just copying scenes and making everybody think they were doing good typology so you know um so seven is uh, Jesus, uh, you know, who uh, doesn't say a word, just like the suffering servant. Well, yeah, we all get that. Last Jedi is Galatians 4, when Paul says Jesus is the rock in the wilderness, which is the better figural reading in typology. They're both good. They're both biblical. But one is much more creative and much more inspired, I think. That's first. And by inspired, too. I don't mean divine inspired. <laughs> inspired yeah. by the way. Yeah, yeah, sorry, is- not yeah, of Corinthians, not Galatians. I did that yeah. in the last podcast too, and I realized it after I, I got off, and then I just did it again. Well, um, Galatians oh, no. does, yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah, the point is, the point is that this too is an allegory, both in First Corinthians and in Galatians four. And uh, I'm just saying that not more inspired. Let me let me correct. Not more inspired in terms of divine inspiration. <laughs> I'm just saying in the if you were to compare them to the Star Wars, I think the Last Jedi does. Uh, much more creative typology and it's not as obvious that's all i'm saying okay i'm open you you guys can't see me but come at me twitter bros these people who say they like star wars i mean i think that the so so i know that the like broody whiny whatever is something that people don't appreciate about anakin and then also about ben Mm -hmm. but i'm i'm an enneagram four everyone's rolling their eyes because i'm bringing up enneagram but Mm -hmm. i'm also just like you know, a person with a lot of big feelings. Yeah. And, and, I'm an uh, I, and I don't care. So, yeah. So I, I get, I was watching um, when we, I, I was telling Brandon before we came on that we've been watching the um, all, all of Star Wars in chronological order. So we've made it through episodes one to three, which we, we were watching Clone Wars now. So technically we went out of order because we watched episode three before Clone Wars. Yeah. Um, so I'm really sorry, everybody. Um <laughs> Anyways, I'm watching Anakin and I'm like, you're the worst, but I really understand you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess, see, as an Enneagram 8, I would see that and go, there's no way he would ever actually become the supreme ruler. He would wind himself out of it eventually. But there is something about really deeply anguished people that they do great things. Look at you, for example. (laughs) Enneagram four. Sorry, deeply, that was a good one. <laughs> um, no, I actually, yeah. I, I don't mind uh, that, that. One of the big critiques of Ben is is the whininess. And I don't mind that actually. I think it makes sense that he is. Uh, I mean, let, the dude basically doesn't know his father uh, and um, realizes his father's a big deal and his father's basically not around. Looks at his grandfather as his hero and his grandfather kind of sucks. 
and uh he just ends up wanting to be like him because he's the guy who uh he looks up to that makes sense to me in reality that would work in reality that's all i'm saying yeah but then so he's the type but he also i mean he obviously doesn't completely follow in his grandfather's footsteps so we see like what went completely wrong in vader you know not go completely wrong in kylo ren so i think that that's a redemptive arc that's a redemptive arc but it ain't right it's like saying well satan gets saved in the end no he doesn't he doesn't so okay (laughs) kylo ren is satan okay Okay. I'm in this in this uh, in this allegory from Galatians four and First Corinthians uh, ten. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I think uh, I actually didn't like that about nine. I didn't like that they tried to redeem him because I think, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I guess you could say Anakin has some redeemable moments where he kind of seems to feel a little bit of guilt in the, in the first uh, or in the four, five, six uh, at times. Um, but ultimately, he is terrible, and that's just how it works out. And I think Ben should have just stayed terrible. I didn't like it. Well, I, I mean, yeah, Anakin always has a thread of mercy. I mean, the thing that, yeah. t- you know, pushes him over the edge is his, like, pain over losing his mother and then the pain over potentially losing Padme, which, of course, I mean, it's ultimately his fault that he loses Padme. Um, yeah. So there's that irony there. But um, that's also, I mean, Vader, uh, you know, is going to relent with Luke, um, ultimately. And and so, um in all of the characters we besides maybe palpatine um and some of the others from outside the the movies um in the broader star wars universe i mean most of them have some kind of redeemable quality i guess none of the sith really besides vader but well i I, yeah i just i think they they're just a little too redeemed a little too redeemed for old ben it's a little he's just a little too much they turned him too too far um Although I do think the montage of him running uh, with the lightsaber to "I need a uh, we need a hero," have you seen that? It is just yeah. one of the best things I've ever seen in my life. So that's better than the movie itself at this point. So before we move on from Star Wars, so we oh, like I'm, I said, I'm we, happy we, to stay here all day. So, yeah, <laughs> okay, we'll have to move on. Uh, we've had some really uh, strange things happening in our household because, uh, like I said, we have a two year old and um, she has all of a sudden gotten like super obsessed with Star Wars. Oh, interesting. And so we have. Um, I don't know if you have seen these books for your girls, but we've got like OB, OB one, two, three, and then mm-hmm. ABC three PO. Oh no. And those books. And she has started reciting the, <laughs> the um, pages. <laughs> and uh, she also has renamed, uh, like she's a little puppy that, that sleeps in her bed. And um, randomly she told me that his name is Darth Vader. <laughs> and um, <laughs> she's doing Darth Vader voices. So my husband, um, got her a bantha for her stocking and it's like her favorite <laughs> her favorite toy um, awesome. her her name is sabantha um so, so. Oh, of course I mean, what else could it be what else could it be called well you are raising uh, her up basically in the, way the she best go. thing that's ever happened so. yeah well bantha is basically just exists to be blown up so at some point she's, <laughs> she's i mean let's be they're basically fed fed to things and blown up typically so um, yeah she she also um she's super into Tuscan Raiders, of course, because Bantha's, but um, she she thought they were called Puskin Raiders, okay. and so and I think we we figured out at some point she thought it was a verb, and so she's walking around going, "I'm a Puskin Raider, Pusk Pusk," and was like <laughs> was pusking things. That's adorable. That's what seven year old. That's awesome. what two year old should be doing in this world. Right? My, my yeah. seven and four year old have not picked up on Star Wars in the way that I would like, but that's fine. So train up the child um, and where you want no, them to go. I think we both can we both agree on this. That if John Favreau and Dave Filoni were in charge of the third 
the the last three, it, they would have been a gajillion times better. Yeah, I'm on board with that for yeah, sure. I mean, I had that evidence from Mandalorian, but now that we're watching Clone Wars, then. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, Mandalor Clone, yeah, Mandalorian does. Uh, I mean, see, I argue that if you like Mandalorian, you should like TLJ. Like TLJ is such a more creative uh, uh, rendering and fulfillment of the things. And Mandalorian does the same thing. It gives you all the fan service you need. It, it makes you feel happy. It brings Ahsoka in and this kind of stuff. And if nobody's seen the finale by now, I don't know how to help you or what to tell you. But that's a that's the biggest fan service in the history of mankind. Uh, to the point that I was not sure that I appreciated it, but I but I do now. It was almost like okay. two on the nose, and I was like, okay, it's it's fine, it's fine. Um, but uh, yeah, I did too ultimately. But I think they do a better job of the sort of uh, what's the word? It's not the one to one parallels that people like so much about, like Seven, for example. It's the, um, it's the, uh, what's the word like the world of star Wars. Yeah. So you get these little, you'll get like little things that like you appreciate Easter eggs or whatever. Yeah. Easter egg. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Where it's just not as obvious. So I just like the ones that are not quite as obvious that seem to take a little more work. And I think Ryan Johnson did that really well. Yeah. No, I mean, I really do like the new trilogy. I'm not, I mean, I'm with you. I think that if it's star Wars movie, then it's enjoyable and in some way and even, um, like the first three, um, I, yeah. you know, I'll, I'll continue to watch them because they do offer us something and fill in the universe. And um, some of them, like some parts of them are very entertaining. Mm -hmm. um, but then there's Jar Jar Binks. And so, yeah. yeah, well, and bad CGI for the time that they were making it. But yeah. Yeah. So okay. bad. We may have beaten yeah. the Star Wars thing to death by now, but Clone Wars and Rebels are uh, definitely highly underrated. But I think people, now that Mandalorian's out, people are realizing they need to get on that train so yeah yeah, uh, yeah i have a, i have a, a, a as a child i was always in the middle of like play sports want to be tough all that kind of stuff and also like super comic book nerd and stuff like that and so that's just um the, the depths in which i have nerddom on superheroes and star wars is, is kind of uh it's almost embarrassing not as embarrassing as notebook being one of my favorite uh romantic comedies <laughs> or romantic movies but nonetheless okay um so what are you, what do you think, I'm trying to say, think of a way to ask this question. It's not a bad question at all. You're writing this Hebrews commentary. When does that come out? I mean, like a million years from now. Okay. I'll just say like uh, sometime in the next decade. <laughs> yeah, being, being, the, uh, being the editor of a commentary series, I, uh, I just acquired our last uh, volume, as you know, recently. And uh, I told the author, basically, this is a 20-year project, so just like pick your date. And they picked like 2032. Because they had a, lot of, a bunch of other stuff going on, I was like, "Yeah, fine, it's commentary. <laughs> it's just, yeah. it's just how it works." Um, what do you think? What do you anticipate is going to be your contribution to the very fulfilled of Hebrews commentary and scholarship? Oh my goodness! Well, um, oh, I am trying to um, not to rehearse what's been said before. I think everybody that writes a commentary does that to some extent, but. Um, but really trying to think through what what does somebody need to do to read Hebrews cohesively and well. And um, and actually, I think um, on our maybe the first conversation that we had, we talked about the um, the women uh, commentary or what is it like women writing commentaries group or whatever. I don't know what the yeah. title is. Anyways, us, the women that are writing commentaries. Um, we've been talking about this a lot and just um, how to. Uh, 
to do well in an oversaturated market and um, to speak well on, to the text and all of that. And it's really interesting to me. I don't the the intentionality with which these women are approaching the project. Um, I just I don't hear a I haven't heard I haven't talked to a lot of people that write commentaries, but I've never heard any anyone reflecting so well about the process itself. Hmm. And so um, one, I, I'm obviously benefiting from hearing their wisdom. Um, but I'm also getting like super psyched about the next generation of commentaries that are coming forward. And so, um, yeah, I'm trying to, uh, to make sure that I'm following some of that, that wisdom too. So some of it's methodological, I guess, but I mean, some of the themes that I'm trying to pick up, um, I mean, I, I'm also writing a book on, um, priestly messianism in Hebrews, um, and trying to highlight the fact that, um, although, you know, Messiah is predominantly associated with the king. Um, that in Hebrews, I think that some of that imagery, even that we think is is clearly or clearly scare quotes royal, um, does have some priestly connotations. Mm. And so I think that that's something I've been kind of pulling through. I'm working on a book on humanity in Hebrews, so of course that's coming through. So I think you know you'll see some of my like pet interests come out in the project but it's because i really do think that those are important themes that the yeah. author is you know has and and there are places where um you know a lot of literature hasn't touched on that so then what i'm doing is summarizing the text broadly but then making sure to kind of fill in those gaps that i'm seeing in the other books so i don't know um is the the royal priestly i mean is that is part of that coming just from the simple fact that that Hebrews is uh, uniquely drawing on Melchizedek in a way that other books aren't? Like, is that where that's coming from, or what else? Are you, I mean, that's an obvious one, but where else are, are you getting that from? Yeah. Um. So I think that the the primary argument in Hebrews is, of course, about Jesus being a priest. Um. But then I've I've been seeing more and more in uh, like Matt Novenson picks up on this a little bit, and I think it's in grammar of messianism not in christ among the messiahs um <laughs> uh <laughs> I'm holding i'm holding up josh chip her colleague's book on messianism <laughs> in the testament make sure she doesn't miss it well no but but josh <laughs> is primarily working with royal themes and and so what he's doing is kind of laying a foundation and i think a lot of scholarship has laid a foundation for seeing um or to see, okay, where are these where do these texts have royal associations? Yeah, and some of those are not clear in the text, but they come through a history of interpretation. And so, what I'm saying is, it could be the case that, um, it, you know, to whatever extent interpretation is a kind of zero sum game, where if we highlight, you know, we turn up the volume on royal messianism to an eleven, then we don't we're not hearing the priestly messianism that I think is super important. And since you know, so I'm working on, I was working on Psalm 45 today. And of course this has royal imagery, but think, think about this. The throne of God is in the tabernacle or the temple. That's, we think of that as a, a strictly royal image, but that's in the cultic, like the heart of cultic worship. Yeah. Um, the rod or staff, like we translate that as a scepter. And I think that's a legitimate translation. And of course that's a piece of, or an item that we associate with the king. But who has staffs in in scripture? It's the priests. The there, the king is anointed with oil and with myrrh, or myrrh and cassia, and those are the spices that the priest is anointed with, and the tabernacle and everything else. And so, I, I mean, these images in some some cases 
kind of do double duty. Yeah. And so um, I'm, I don't know, like if there's not a, like, I don't have a, you know, um, like a framework that says like, you know, boom, 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 this is how we look at this. But I'm just trying to pick up on some of those res resonances for now, yeah. um, you know, for that later work. So I can pull together some threads. Yeah. So I don't know if that makes sense. I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're, the, you're the expert here, not me. So if you say it, I believe it. Um, well. <laughs> now there is something to, uh, it does seem like uh, there's something to this idea that, I don't know, this is going to be ineloquent, but that the king, the king does in a way function in a priestly role uh, in certain ways right? as the, as the stand in for the people and um, even the idea of being a shepherd and that kind of stuff. And so, you know, I've seen, you know, in Hebrews and other places where there is this, you have that, what is it called? Uh, Triperspectivalism, you know, where that whole thing gets, um, which maybe uh, distinguishes them too much in some ways where it's like, here's this office and here's this office, but it does seem like there are some, some, some sorts of overlap, particularly in cultic worship. What do you think of that? Uh, a very unorganized idea I just said. No, that, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure that that was even as rambling as the thing I said right before that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think that um, we do see David doing things or doing uh, actions that are associated with the priest. Um, I was even reading like first Samuel 16 today. And um, when, when uh, Samuel goes to see Jesse and his sons, I never noticed this before, but he, he brings a heifer and he, um, he like says, let's, let us go to the sacrifice. Yeah. And so, and then he, you know, anoints all of them yeah. and that would be like getting them ready for the cultic act of act of worship, like consecrating them for the sacrifice. And so I don't know, I and mean, there's just some interesting stuff there. And so, um, yeah, I don't want to, like I said, I don't want to minimize the Royal associations, but maybe yeah. more heighten the fact that we do see some, a, a more dynamic portrayal. And so, yeah, we see, um, uh, what we, what we sometimes see in the literature is yeah, totally prophet priest King, but really then we just talk about David and how he was a king. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I'm trying to balance that a little bit more, I think. Yeah. Would you tie uh, messianic expectations to priesthood? Because that is obviously, you know, obviously very kingly for, for reasons that are totally legitimate. Um, do you think that there are, are you finding distinct priestly promises that are messianic in, in nature? Um, in nature? Yeah. Well, don't over, don't overthink that too much, but uh, are there certain things that the Messiah is expected to do that have a priestly function and not merely a royal or even maybe just a priestly function. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly the case that at Qumran that we see Messianic figures that are operating in priestly roles. Um, I, and there are other texts, I mean, um, like Nick Perrin, um, our president at TEDS or at TIU, um, he, sorry, he's written the book, uh, Jesus as Priest. Yeah. And um, he highlights um, some threads like in Psalm 110 and everything. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's certainly the case, as, as you said, Melchizedek is, a, is kind of key here. And I, I still need to think through how all this comes together and stuff. So I'm, I'm not um, adopting this wholesale or anything. But um, yeah, the, I mean, we think of that as a royal text, but it's your priest forever. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, I think that that's, that's crucial. So in Melchizedek in, at Qumran, I, I mean, sometimes he's a priest, sometimes he's like an angel liberator, like there are all yeah. kinds of things. So um, uh, Messiah language is, uh, is a big category um, or texts with Messiah language are really diverse. 
And, uh, and so part of what I want to do is look at all the texts that I can and look at where the associations are, where we see patterns, what the images are and how they hold together for yeah. royal, priestly, whatever. So I don't know. Yeah, no, that's helpful. All right, your turn. We're running out. We're running out of time already. I don't. Know, I don't know how long we've been talking already, but I feel like it's been. Do you have a Do you have a timestamp on your recording? No, I don't. <laughs> Years. Um, it's, aging. But it's. Uh, yeah, it's been a long time. <laughs> yeah. Longer than it probably seemed like. Uh, all right. Um, you got a final. You got a final one here. Take it however you want to go. Since everybody's demanding that you could be the co-host anyway, I'm giving you co-host uh, right here. Take it however you want. How about How about this, um, Brandon? Is it true that you won't let me be your co-host because you're worried that I'll do something weird when other people are around? <laughs> no, it's more that I'm afraid that everybody's going to like you better and I'm going to become obsolete. I think that's what it is. It's it's me protecting it's me protecting my turf, protecting my uh, no myself. Way. And I'd have to split all these massive uh, amounts of advertisement money that are coming in with you. And <laughs> I don't I can't pay for my Range Rover if I'm having to uh, share all that money with you. So. Oh man. No, I, I mean, I told Brandon that the main reason that I'm doing this is so that I can, you know, develop some friendships with some of his uh, more frequent guests that <laughs> so he won't let me get in a room with. So, yeah, so <laughs> well, you know, I, I, if I don't, if I don't maintain the uh, direct relationship, if I allow you guys to start talking, then again, I get pushed out of the group and this is not what an eight does. An eight puts everybody on their back and goes, an eight does not share. And so, um, I just have to be really careful. But one of the okay. people that you mentioned, who I'm not going to mention because he would he would enjoy the public mention way too much and pretend like he didn't, uh, has asked many times if we could do one. Uh, the all three of us have an episode together, so it's probably going to happen eventually. Um, but right now, I'm just I'm I'm holding on to the uh, I'm holding on to the power that I have with this here microphone. So okay, and if it makes you feel better, yes, I agree. You're an ape, so no problem. <laughs> <laughs> I see what you did there. I see what you did there. This is why I don't let you talk to my friends. This is exactly why. So, oh man, no, I uh, no, I appreciate, I appreciate you, uh, I appreciate you pointing that out. And eventually, it'll happen. And then everybody who listens to this, maybe it'll be in back of their mind. And then whenever there's another person on here uh, on an episode with the two of us, they'll be like, oh, but we'll see, we'll see how it okay. goes. Good. Um, do you have anything serious you want to say, or or is that? I guess that was serious in your mind, but. It, it was, it was really important to yeah. me, but yeah, I, I can't come back from that. I'm dejected and just really hoping that someday I'll prove my, you know, merit. We'll see. We'll yeah. see. Um, yeah. To be fair. And we acknowledged this last time as well. Um, you invited me and then disinvited me on your little friend <laughs> podcast. So I had to go get Josh Jip on my Our podcast separately. Podcast. <laughs> well, I mean, compared to this, uh, you know, world renowned podcast, I mean, little's probably, good way to describe it no i'm just kidding I, I hope people realize like how much i'm kidding like because uh how much i'm really trolling people probably just think i'm an arrogant jerk which is true but i don't want them to think it so i have to i am coming off pretty well out. here i mean that's why i called you an <laughs> ape is i thought like maybe people you know i, I need to be just a little more yeah, yeah yeah they're gonna resonate with that for sure there's no, <laughs> no. There's, there's no doubt about that i was trying to make myself just a little bit more of like a dynamic character like if yeah. i you know if i call him an ape then they'll like rally behind brandon a little bit it won't be yeah, like yeah. completely one-sided yeah so you're just trying to help me out you're trying to help me i was out. yeah um, you're welcome well i wish that somebody helped me out whenever i uh said galatians 4 in the last podcast so you can tell tell josh <laughs> you should help me on that he probably thought about it and was like no nah, i'm gonna let it go um but alas one of my rules of this podcast is almost never do I delete anything uh, in the conversation? Almost never. Almost never. 
So uh, I'm gonna, I, I don't mind uh, being made fun of and making mistakes, you know, it's just part of growing. You know, it's part of my humility is that I am so humble that I can both acknowledge my humility and point out the ways in which I'm acting humbly, so. Wow. If y'all could see me, I'm just slow clapping, yeah. right, for Brandon. You can't hear it, but yeah, it's it, totally happening. You're in awe of my humility, I understand. <laughs> yeah. Makes total sense. All right, Madison. Well, we will do this again uh, sometime soon. Um, people have probably either tuned out by now or are just riveted. Uh, you know, you never know which one, but you just do what you can, see what happens, so. All right, good to talk. See you. Bye.